Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club. The month is July, and that means that the book under discussion is Imperial Bedrooms, Brett Easton Ellis's sequel to Less Than Zero. My name is Troy Patterson. I'm a critic writing about television and such here. And today I am joined by Stephen Metcalf, Slate's critic at large. Stephen. Troy, thank you. Uh, and our third is Slate editor Michael Agger. Hello. So we've got uh, two books under discussion here, uh, both the new book, Imperial Bedrooms, and the um, classic, we'll call it. We'll, we'll start out by calling it a classic and then decide if we we're going to demote it in the course of this discussion, less than zero. Steve, you were just perhaps bemoaning during soundcheck that you're perhaps struggling in the middle of writing a Brady Stanellis piece? That, 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 that's right, Troy. I'm supposed to write something about the new book uh, in relation to the old book, and, and I'm writing a book about the 1980s, and so this would apparently be uh, directly in my wheelhouse, hit it out of the park, knock out 1,800 words, and, and go hit the go hit the links at 3 p.m. And I find myself struggling over it. I, the truth is, there isn't an easy way in which I apprehend these books as debased and, and, and awful. I, I certainly don't see them as clearly meritorious or, lit, or literary. I'm having all the troubles I think one has with Brett Easton Ellis, that Brett Easton Ellis himself has with Brett Easton Ellis, which is this you know, it's very hard to fix his place in the literary firmament. It's very hard to pin down exactly what the purpose of these books is and what's being accomplished by them. I think the origins partially are, are in Brett Easton Ellis's literary celebrity, which uh, started when he was very young. This was a book that he wrote effectively as an adolescent. It was published his second year. Uh, the, the first one, Less Than Zero, was written effectively when he was an adolescent, published when he was 21 at Bennington College and I think his sophomore year. And he was made famous very early for catching a particular moment, a moment in which um, kind of heartless sex and drug abuse could be glamorized, but in a very particular way in this kind of toneless, affectless manner that his prose is famous for that captures a kind of nihilism. The fact that the narrator isn't thrilled by the promiscuity and by the hard drugs, I think, is much more important to that book than whatever thrill he's getting from it. And by contrast, I think I recently wrote about Jay McInerney, who also has written a bookend book, right? A book that, you know, McInerney also became famous uh, in the 80s, right alongside of Brett Easton Ellis. They were pub crawlers together. They hit page six uh, routinely side by side. And and um, McInerney wrote a kind of bookend to the 80s book that came out recently called How It Ended, right? This sort of self-conscious valediction to this era that gave them both their literary celebrity. I find McInerney as a writer very easy to fix. McInerney is a guy who wants you to think that he's part of a debauched or a debased moment and, and reports the news coming from the frontier of that, that debauched moment. So he goes to the club, he takes the cocaine, he dates the models. But he's effectively a literary Puritan and a would-be comedian of manners. Whether he succeeds at that or fails at that, there are differing opinions. But I feel like that's who McInerney is. Uh, he's working both sides of that street. Brady Sunellis, Mike, I, I have to say, I can't quite get it. 
uh, pin it down in a way that that, that there's a there's a poker face, a very self conscious literary poker face game of poker face going on, and and I lose it every time when I read Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, I mean, you certainly get the sense when reading this new book, Imperial Bedrooms, like you know, it, it's just it just could all be a con. Hey, actually, no, no, I'll take that back. You know, it's a con, and you know that Ellis is conning you. But then you're like, okay, we all know that, so. You know, I, I'm aware that he's conning me, and then it's sort of like a higher level. Well, do I like agree to participate in like the conning? Of, uh, what is the nature of yeah. the con? Would you say? I mean, I just think you know, it's not a legitimate attempt to write a sequel to Lesson Zero. It's like it's sort of floating on the the publicity of Lesson Zero, and and uh, you know, inviting you back into this world in a way that's. You know, he hasn't even tried to reimagine it. It's just another kind of artificial journey with these characters, and and I think you know there's a literary mindset that that would be repelled by that. That I think Ellis is sort of daring you to kind of as he as he always does in his books to be like, well, oh, you know, hey, that I kind of that's a kind of a cool affect, you know, that, that I like the you know, he, it's repulsive and he's not trying, but, you know, we should look at ourselves and see why that annoys us, you know, why are we so interested in originality and those <laughs> sorts of things. <laughs> um, anyway, what was your, t- what was your feeling, Troy? Uh, my feeling about this, about the book, the new mm-hmm. book, Imperial Bedrooms, my, well, my first thought is that Knopf has a lot of Knerve, um asking people <laughs> to pay whatever the list price on this book is, 20, like 26, 27 bucks. Uh, for what is at best uh, a novella, and it, at best it's in a novella, and I think that it's the slimness and slightness of the book is hardly limited to the uh, the page count. This is an extremely thin story, um, and so maybe we can get some traction here by talking about sort of the plot, such as it is. In the first book, our narrator and antihero Clay was was a college freshman back in Los Angeles for a month on. Christmas break and suffering from uh, just a sort of vague spiritual anomie. Was that what we're going to call it? Uh, there's, you know, exist- I, I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, existential dread, disconnection from his family unit, is numb on a wide variety of drugs and um, pop music, and his uh, friends are drug dealers and um, prostitutes. And but we should say rich kids, uh, rich kids who are getting in, dabbling in 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 drugs and prostitution. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. These are the um, the spawn of movie business mockers. Right. He's not. It's not a Baudelarian, you know, tour of the gutter. Right. I mean, it's it's about the rich rich kids of Los Angeles. Oh, it's a very nice gutter. Yes. It's, it's, the, it's the gutter <laughs> of Beverly Hills. Um, and so yes. So back then, Clay was a sort of. Um, a sort of numb young man and kind of interesting I think that that, that first book worked because of sort of uh, he had a distance right he was sort of among all this low living and taking part of it uh, sort of wholeheartedly it's a cold heart but uh, wholeheartedly but still he felt sad and bad and uh, with with just just enough of uh, sort of the flatness of affect, I think is what sort of saves the book. Sort of the dryness of the tone. So as, as horrible things are happening and and sort of drug overdoses and snuff films, um, there's nothing sensationalistic about the tone, which I think made it 
go over well. It's nice and cool. And also, if you'll forgive me for saying uh, for using the word relatable, it was kind of easy to get into the book as sort of a depiction of a kind of adolescent mind, even if you know your own sort of uh, trips back home from college where you feel this distance from your family and friends if if uh, you know in less than zero these moments are happening at you know at Spago's with cocaine and you know even if uh, in your own life it's like Burger King and Bud Light there, there's still something that, to speak to you there this is a long winded way of saying that that was Clay now it's 2010 Clay is back in Los Angeles he is a screenwriter who's had some success he's he, he has not kicked the enemy thing nor his substance abuse problems and so those are kind of his companions as he ventures around Los Angeles the book should be this is one of the many ways in which the book is disappointing it should be a who done it sort of we know up front that people are going missing people keep disappearing people want things people need things they're cars following cars it sounds like it should be a plot but it isn't in fact because nothing gets discovered there's no sleuthing there's no investigation there are just these sort of like periodic revelations leading to sort of a a small holocaust in in palm springs right i i would add uh, two things very quickly to that uh one is that the book begins with a i think possibly neat and clever postmodern trick which is that clay claims that he's the real clay that the book was produced by Brett Easton Ellis by someone else who was a writer who was hanging out with them, and now he can pick up on the on the tr- sort of true story. He says the novel was relatively accurate, the movie was a kind of travesty. So there's this way in which you get thrust back into the real world, the quote-unquote real world, or the fictional world is made to seem real by this person disavowing the book to some extent and saying, I was impersonated by a writer who, who hung out with our crowd. The second thing I would say is I absolutely agree that, that the first book, was written with a kind of remarkable dif- discipline for a writer in his late teens and early 20s in the sense that that it never cracked a smile and it never broke that placidity of affectless surface, which is what carries the book, I think, the, the, the first one. The second one does crack that surface and not in a way that, that irreparably damages it because there is an evocative L.A. noir, which Brett Easton Ellis over the last 20, 25, 30 years has learned how to write quite well. And so it's it is evocative of the of the of a certain style and uh, uh, of L.A. noir and a certain fact of L.A. that it's a large, sprawling, electric and sinister town built around the business, you know, the business of show built around show business. But having evoked that. Right. Where does it where does it go? Right. Where does it go? There's this sinister atmosphere. Mike, it's just atmospherics. Right. It doesn't really it grabs you, but then takes you nowhere. Yeah, I I guess I would say that was one of the more dated qualities of the book. It was it just like since the original Less Than Zero has been written and now this book, it's like you know there's some people have really thought through you know how uh, movies and and kind of living for fame can be extremely alienating and kind of self eating and you know they kind of have these sort of B movie types populating this book and and just being their motivations being totally kind of convenient and transparent. It, it, it was, you know, they're just getting shuffled around L.A. They're not, they didn't really take us anywhere surprising, although, you know, as usual, Ellis was willing to kind of provide snuff film-like details um, <laughs> to keep us what, jolted. What, what, what do we think of that? I'm uh, a big fan of American Psycho. Or, well, yeah, 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 but that's 
That's for a different podcast. I, I remember myself as a big fan of American Psycho. I was young when I read it. I believe that I wrote a term paper writing about it in connection with Dostoevsky. I certainly have no interest in rereading that term paper, but I'm, I'm confident that that there's there's something interesting and meaningful in that approach to sort of ultraviolence. Well, I guess I would say I'm like an old-fashioned reader in the sense that, you know, I like to be kind of enveloped in the fictional reality. And, you know, I always take the kind of extreme gore and violence to kind of he's Ellis trying to kind of awaken the Puritan within you and, and to kind of make you feel uncomfortable and see how you react. And I don't know. I just don't. It's not taking me somewhere. I, I wasn't. I don't. What do you think of that stuff, Steve? I, I mean, you know, it fails to it it fails to connect with me aesthetically at all. Uh, even though I recognize that there's this building contrast between the the, the, the tonelessness of the prose and the you know uh, vividness of the violence and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That you know, an axe is being taken to my frozen inward sea or something. But it fail, it fails to break or melt that at all. But I will say that there is a second plot or a sort of second core to the book, which I found way more interesting than the violence, though it overlaps with it eventually, which is his relationship with this young actress named Rain. And there, certainly it's riddled with cliches as well. But it seems to me one of the things that Ellis is getting at is that for whatever reason, Clay is made enormously vulnerable by this woman. He becomes obsessive about her. And it's almost as if he's fallen in love with her but Ellis is trying to take the measure of the dam- internal damage of Clay by the fact uh, that he can only play a game of, of control with her in which he tactically dangles the possibility that she'll get a part in a movie that he's writing. And then when she fails to, you know, he basically he extracts a term of serv- sexual servitude from her by, by dangling this promise. And when she becomes distant, you know, he becomes cunning and, and, and coy about the possibility of her being in the movie, and that this takes up a, a lot of the book, is, you know, his obsession with her and the origin of it. And I thought that could, that could have been an interesting story. I mean, it could have been the story of, of how fucked up this guy... I mean, it is the story of how fucked up this guy is and what he does in lieu of, of you know, normal human intimacy. At the same time, it just seems loaded down with uh, the... With, uh, with, with, uh, hackneyed impulses. Troy, what do you think of that part of the book? Uh, I, I'm with you on that. And, and in one sense, this, all the book is is sort of an elaboration of the old joke about the actress who was so dumb that she went to Hollywood and slept with the screenwriter. <laughs> and on the, on the other, there, there is a little bit of attention that's gotten between... Well, let me see if I can just sort of extract sort of two bits of dialogue from the book. While you're doing that, I will say that... Um, you know, Ellis hasn't lost his gifts for for great names, and I think we should. I was wondering if we could all adopt like a like you know, if you like have a poor name, if you could have like, a, like an like an Ellis name generator. I mean, yeah, yeah, an Ellis name that would be wonderful. You know, I was I was trying to think of one like that's a great like, idea. like a Thadley, or, or uh, I think I'd just have to be Troy. This well, Troy, yeah, Troy actually does it already. Good, right? <laughs> so early in the book, someone says. Uh, sort of of Clay and to him. I think Clay is very p- pragmatic. What's unbelievable is clinging to a fading belief in love. And then later, uh, sort of uh, when Rip is uh, chastising Clay, said, could it be that you actually get off on the fact that because of how you've set things up, they'll never love you back? They being the sort of the actresses who Clay serially abuses. Could it be that you actually get off on the fact that because of how you've set things up, they'll never love you back? And could it be that that you're so much crazier than any of us ever really knew? Ouch. I say that aloud, and that's 
it's even pulpier than I'd realized the first time. I know. You read it aloud. That's the thing. You start reading it aloud, and you start to see it better for what it is, right? I mean... I mean, I I will say though I I like it when Ellis brings the details, you know, like uh, the sort of the, I like the rain subplot the best, like you did, and uh, just sort of the description of her life, you know, sort of the constant texting and and uh, kind of angling into parties and like who was there and who wasn't, and and then sort of the way uh, Ellis describes the landscape of young actors in in Los Angeles, and just um, there's this great scene where the the Clay character sort of propositions this young actor and says like and makes it very clear to him that you know hey hey if you don't go home with me you know I'm going to make it make certain that you don't get this part and the young actor sort of immediately replies all right dude let's go you know like, right. just sort of this and the, how like and Ellis has this great line where it's like you know the instantness of the reply was the creepy part you know and sort mm-hmm. of and you know having not spent time in these clubs and circles I can't say whether it's true or not but that but his that evocation of that milieu I thought was a lot was very compelling to me in the book and right yeah yeah. right Uh, yeah no no I totally agree and and he gives you the sense of this and this is sort of a little bit of Nathaniel West but he gives you this sense of uh, an absolutely huge country right bumper cropping every year a new uh, set of new cohort of 17, 18, 19 year olds who all just go on a bus, you know, to Hollywood. Uh, and they're uh, competing against one, one another in a pitiless Darwinian struggle. And for any leg up, they'll fuck anything at, uh, on a moment's notice. And there is uh, a tremendous pathos to that. He milks it a little bit self consciously, which is too bad. And, and, and that's where we pick up with Rain and where Rain could be interesting because. You know, she's given a real name. That clearly, that's a fake name. She's given a real name at one point. He finds out what it is, and there's something just there's like it, he he names her beautifully because it's a completely unbred Easton Ellis name. It's Donna something. Does anyone? Yeah, you're right. It's like, oh, oh, Donna Zarelli or something. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Just go ahead. And, but by giving her this name, he gives you this tiny glimpse into the anonymity this woman is so desperate to shed, which I think is quite p- powerfully done um, because it's so minimally uh, indicated. Uh, Denise Tazarek? Tazarek? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But then he screws it up completely in my mind by having every other person in the story obsessed with her as well and fighting over her, giving you the impression suddenly that there are only five people in the world and they all want to sleep with her and they're all murderously competing with one another, including his therapist. To my mind, that got very peculiar. Yeah, for a bunch of like, you know, drug taking nihilists, like they all love the same face. Exactly. And he doesn't convey what's so unique about that face in a way. He does make her sort of a generic, you know, Hollywood, um, you know, hottie. Sure. Here's, I've, I've got one idea for you, though, Steve, for your piece. Which I'd is love that it. One thing that's... Uh, it's one more than I got. One thing about the book, both that makes the, the prose go over and does something to give the, the, the book some thematic coherence is that um, it's, it seems always to be operating in this... There's a cinematic register to the prose um, in terms of the sort of the pace and the nature of the description and the way that the visual description is meted out. But also in its, you know, there are these direct references to to Sunset Boulevard and to Contempt to think of a couple movies Mm -hmm. about movie making and cynicism. Uh, There's, you know, one scene that's sort of set at the, uh, you know, the Griffin Observatory, which we think of from uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And there are 
sort of lots of moments where the characters seem to be alive to sort of the moviness of their situation. Mm. You know, people saying things like, are we going to play out another scene? That's just another character you're playing. What movie do you think you're in? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is the is this the self-consciousness of uh, characters in a postmodern novel or is it the super self-consciousness that people who live and work in Hollywood actually have? You know, everyone in Los Angeles feels himself to be in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, aspiring to both, maybe? Um, an- another thing I really liked about that, uh, and I totally agree with you about that, is is um, he's d- uh, the narrator, Clay, is very discerning when it comes to movies and very critical when it comes to movies. Uh, in addition to being cynical about the paycheck and you know, and just going through the motions and getting remunerated to a preposterous degree for, for crappy work, but when he... There are many scenes in the movie where he's watching a movie and Rain is relatively indifferent to it and he's picking up on where the plot just completely gives out and collapses. It's two or three times, but it's this interesting indication that 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 craft is something this writer would like to bring to the business of making movies as the writer, and and he doesn't really have a chance to do it. But he hasn't abandoned aesthetic standards, even though he, even though he's living there. You know, so there's every indication that Clay is trying to maintain some sense of aesthetic rectitude in the face of commercial vulgarity. But is this something we really trust Brady Snellis to have maintained in the face of his own literary celebrity? What do you think, Troy? I do indeed. And I think that this is why I will always pick up a Brett Easton Ellis book, despite um, the manifest flaws of so many of them, is that uh, he's quite uh, – I, I believe in him as a stylist, which, you know, and any good stylist is going to be a – at least a part-time charlatan, and I'm okay with that. He's especially proficient at uh, sort of these good rhythmic endings. He can do a dying fall, and he can do sort of the, the, the sort of the deft step away. Um, and so, I'm going to read a paragraph now that sort of uh, illustrates what I contend to be Ellis's talent for the the kind of the smooth getaway in a, from a paragraph. And I don't even know if I need to contextualize this paragraph. Um, It might actually hurt if if I did. In any event, Banks closes his menu when the owner leans down and whispers something to him. Josh Hartnett, who is going to play one of the sons and the listeners and then bailed, walks over and crouches by the bamboo chair, and we have a brief exchange about another script of mine that he's been circling. But his apologetic lack of commitment only makes me seem more remote than I'm actually feeling. Though I know that what he's saying isn't true, I smile and agree anyway. Austere plates of raw fish start arriving, along with ice-cold bottles of premium sake, and then the guys make fun of a very successful shark movie I wrote, and the series about witches I created that ran for two seasons on Showtime. Then Wayne starts telling a story about an actress who stalked him until he cast her in a movie about a monster that looked like a talking beanbag. Just as the owner sends the table a complimentary dessert, an elaborate plate of sugared donuts drizzled with caramel, the night begins sliding into its last act. I'm scanning the room when I see the cascade of blonde hair, the wide-open pale blue eyes, the dumb smile that offsets her beauty while at the same time making it more pronounced. She's on the phone at the hostess stand, and then I realize it's time to cross the line. Now, there there are good and bad parts to that paragraph. There, are, you know, there's status details that are maybe at once telling and hackneyed. I think that uh, that was. Um, a good joke about the monster that looks like a talking beanbag, uh, but what what puts it over is is just the kind of the rhythm to it and the motion of it. I like his sense of he's got the beat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so utterly itself in a weird way. You have to respect it, right? I mean, it's so utterly of that moment when, uh, or, or comes out of that moment 
in the 80s when these kinds of distinctions suddenly became enormously important, when we started not only going to see movies but reading about how they were made, who, who made them, and how much money they made making them, when the kind of culture of glamour and therefore the sort of roping, the VIP roping off of a certain kind of person from the rest of us really, really took off. It really did take off. Uh, you, the, you, wrote, you wrote a magazine profile about a famous person in a very different way in 1985 than you wrote it in 1975. Uh, the premises were very different. And it made sense that there was going to be someone with a vestigial literary sensibility on the front lines of that reporting to the rest of us what it's like with one foot over the rope and one foot um, not over the rope. And, and Ellis and McInerney filled that role and I guess one has to kind of go with it a little bit and, and accept that, 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 that it captured its moment and, and we live with it for better and worse. But, but I can't follow Troy in some way. It still turns my stomach. It's like watching a good video. I feel like. you know, you know, it's it's like it, it kind of is what he's describing. You know, it's just sort of like the, like you'll just be kind of cruising along with Ellis, and then just be, just be kind of a great moment where like the you know the details and the and the rhythm as you describe Troy sort of connect in a way that you know like a good song and video can, and and then you know I'm right there with him. But and, and to be clear, Steve, I'm talking about the skills that he brings to the table that uh, allow me to um, set. My critical judgment aside, and to yeah. to slide along the th- that surface yeah. with him. Yeah, no, I completely, I'm completely with you. Yeah, it's sort of like you know, writers tend not to hang a- around certain places. You know, I think that's why else is interesting. I mean, there's a tradition of obviously people writers kind of gazing in on Hollywood and writing about it. But you know, we t- writers tend not to hang around law firms or you know insurance offices or you know. Th- I, and I just think like. You know, Ellis has a good vantage point, partly you know based on the celebrity of the original novel. You know, he just kind of he's got some good windows to look into. But I think, I, mm-hmm. but I think part of the game is 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 given up when he tips the poker hand a little bit. And let me give you an example from this book. He writes: So many people died last year: the accidental overdose, the car wreck in East Hampton, the surprise illness. People just disappeared. I fall asleep to a song from the past. Hungry like the wolf, rising faintly above the leaping chatter of the club. I think he lives near a club, and he he hears it from his bedroom window. Transporting me for one long moment into someone both young and old. Sadness, it's everywhere. (laughs) Right, lethal. It kills the whole thing. It kills what's good about it, right? I mean, it reveals even what's good about it for what it is in some way. Or am I being too harsh? Yeah, I mean, it's like... For any kind of real emotion to seep in here, you feel like it has to have. He has to have this kind of major tidal wave of. You know, it's almost like he's like running up next to the cliff, and like you're right. Like every now and then he jumps off. And you're like, oh man, like why do you do that? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's the discipline of withholding yeah. the the emotion or the disgust or the affect that that makes Ellis Ellis. And when he cracks in this book, Troy, he totally cracks. Uh, the ending being the most obvious example of it, right? I mean, he gives away the whole candy store as far as I can tell I mean, how do you recover from the last sentence of this book you a glass of kettle one <laughs> exactly. I think it's what Clay would do exactly and another big fat check from... should we read that sentence or should uh, can we is that like oh you... I mean we can't really spoil this book I mean you know it's it's like uh, you know where you're going from the first page but well why don't you read the final paragraph Mike do you want to read sure there are many things Blair doesn't get about me so many things she ultimately overlooked and things that she would never know, 
and there would always be a distance between us, because there were too many shadows everywhere. Had she ever made promises to a faithless reflection in the mirror? Had she ever cried because she hated someone so much? Had she ever craved betrayal to the point where she pushed the crudest fantasies into reality, coming up with sequences that only she and nobody else could read, moving the game as you play it? Could she locate the moment she went dead inside? Does she remember the year it took to become that way? The fades, the dissolves, the rewritten scenes, all the things you wipe away. I now want to explain these things to her, but I know I never will. The most important one being, I never liked anyone, and I'm afraid of people. I believe him. Yeah, I, I believe him too. I mean, that's part of the problem, right? I mean, you know, when I when I read those words, could she locate the moment she went dead inside? I mean, that's sort of when the... The kind of the internal sigh comes over me. I That's just... when you went dead inside. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, just... I went dead inside on page 168 of Imperial Bedrooms. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the matter. It's like, it would be like if the Pretenders came out with a new song or something. You know, it would be like you could play the same kind of notes and the same kind of lyrics, but it's just. Right. Well, and that you mentioned out lyrics. Of time. It's the wrong time. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And th- there's a way in which also, I think it's kind of easier to get away it, with this sort of thing when you're writing about teenagers, when you're writing about 18 year old, exactly. 18, 19 year olds and less exactly. than zeros. The bar is lower. And just to, yeah, to that Hungry Like the Wolf reference, it, the um, sort of the references to pop music in that book and the invocations of it seem so much more sort of natural and fitting because they're kind of appropriate to the overwrought sort of self-dramatizing way that teenagers think about their lives. In this book, it's just like a movie soundtrack. Yeah, and also he's brought in this ultra-violence in the background in order to keep the book from feeling really slim. I mean, let's face it, from making it feel like an episode of 90210 or The Hills, right? Both of which, in some ways, we can thank Brett Easton Ellis for, right? So he's brought in the specter of Mexican drug cartels and, and mass graves and people disappearing, and he's being followed. He's being sinisterly texted over and over and over again. I like how in the original Less Than Zero, a person's face sort of, when he doesn't know what to write, someone just lights up a cigarette, right? And in this one, they text, and they both kind of light up faces in darkened places uh, in similar ways. But having brought in this kind of uh, this enormous sense of danger from something extremely worldly and consequential, which is Mexican drug cartels and you know Rip's connection to to people who will kill you if they if they don't if they if they care to, he then still keeps it an episode of nine hundred two one zero right. That specter is raised in order to give the book some heft and some sense of consequence out of like you know Blair still really likes you. <laughs> She really still likes you. I mean, these people are in their fucking forties, and like people, are, people are saying Blair still really likes you. And in order to keep that from seeming as banal as it obviously is, he brings in violence and and something I think we should talk about. I mean, this is a spoiler alert. I mean, a big moment in the book is he sells his supposed friend Julian completely down the river, feeling like he's been sold down the river emotionally by Julian over this woman Rain, and uh, essentially he gets him killed. Right? I mean, he he signs the death warrant on this guy, um, which is supposed to make us 
Blanche in, in horror, uh, in a way. But you, you believe him when he's reporting from the front lines of rich kid drug abuse. You don't believe him the way you believe Joseph Conrad, you know, when Conrad's reporting from the front lines of the Congo, you know, the interior of the Congo. Like, you don't feel as though Brad Easton Ellis has experienced these things or seen these things in some way that gives him an authority on them. You feel as though they're writerly tricks, and you see exactly how the rabbit got in the hat. That yeah. wasn't a question. I think. I think. Well, I think this is this is the point in the meeting where we like you know the third act really needs a, a rewrite, and, and you bring in you know uh, Steve Zalian or something to you know make it happen. Right. Um, um, does this book have a claim to being literature? Uh, it's kind of it's in this weird nether zone where it's this is not sort of like satisfying. Yeah, poem. No, that's right. It's, it's not. There's a pot is put on to boil, but it does not really matter what is in it, right? Um, <laughs> so the, if Ellis were here, we're saying we're you know we're being way too fussy. Yeah, we're not understanding the kind of you know games that he's playing. You know, that's, uh, but do you buy that? I guess I don't buy it because I sort of I agree with you in the sense that you know he is he does try to go for genuine emotion in this and and, and certainly trips up at that at those points. So. Yeah. It's not. It's got. You got to be all game or, or not. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a weird answer to your question, mm-hmm. which is, I think, like, fil- it passed through filter number one in a weird way, which is the culture needed a young person to write from the front lines of '80s amoralism, and give a display of what young privileged people were thinking because a catcher in the rye was no longer going to suffice. And in some way, I think the culture wrote that book in a weird way. I mean, obviously, Brett Easton Ellis wrote it, but the, but the need at that moment to have that book was very powerful, and it elevated that book, and the book was up to, up to the moment, right, in a weird way. The only way I could see a second filter doing something for this book is if some thermonuclear event kind of wipes out most of the species and most of our species' memory, and a millennium hence... You know, this and a few other things survive, and people are really trying to recapture what it was like. You know, in a weird way, this is a, this is evidence of what life has been like over the last twenty years in some kind of twisted way. If it passes through some completely arbitrary filter, and it's the only thing people have in the year three thousand to look back on, you know, whatever our period was leading up to the pushing of the red button. I, you know, they'll not red buttons the comedian, but the, but the red button that blows. So, but, but you know, it'll 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 tell people something about about the way we lived. Sadly, I mean, it's it's pathetic and sad, but it will it will it will it'll get some get at something real. What do you think? I don't know. I was gonna. I'm gonna deflect that question by asking Michael if he buys that. Yeah. No. I think. Uh, yeah. I'm in the year 3000, and and the, and the button blowing everything up, and you come across imperial bedrooms. What would you know? I mean, I guess. Again, you know, I think Ellis is is traveling among people who don't read. You know, there's never any mention of the news. Of, yeah, of there's no current events. I mean, it's it's kind of this timeless movie space, and you know, like. There are lives like this, and people like you know who live like that, and and uh, there's a certain fascination in, in reading about that and wondering how true it all is. So yeah, I guess I, I'll buy. I'll go with Steve. I'll, I'll be there with the um, the forensic anthropologist, a thousand years hence, and and say that Ellis will will have some use describing our moment. I mean, you know what? I love your point about the original Lesson Zero. How you know the culture sort of wrote that book, and and it was it was buoyed up by this need to replace Catcher in the Rye. And I'm curious, Steve, like your thoughts about you know both you mentioned Mech and Ernie earlier, like they both kind of struggled with that that burden. Um, I, what what do you make of that? You know, when you kind of get that touched upon you, you know, just starting off. And 
Oh boy. Yeah. I I don't know. It's a it's a it's a funny one. I mean, I well, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when I was reading about Ellis, who I knew very little about, I had never read Lesson Zero, was uh, Jonathan Lethem was. Uh, I don't know if he was in his class at Bennington, but he may actually well have been. It was Donna Tart. I believe. Yeah, they were there together. Yeah, it was yeah, Donna Tartt and Bernice yeah. Nellis and Jonathan Lethem, and they didn't perceive Lethem because Lethem never advertised himself as a writer. And say what you want about Jonathan Lethem. I mean, Lethem allowed his talent to develop. Uh, he allowed himself to not grow up in public, you know, maybe by his own volition, maybe not, and and eventually made something out of his own you know, rather peculiar childhood in Brooklyn, rather unique childhood in Brooklyn, made arguably vastly superior books to Brett Easton Ellis's because they didn't go with that grain. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they, you know, he didn't try to become part of a, a literary brat pack. And so I think you, you have to pay the, if, if you're going to get all the benefits of speaking for your generation and being timely in a somewhat arbitrary way, you know, you have to pay the pri- pay the piper as well. And, and the downside of it is you, you date, you date very easily. You're known for your public immaturity in a way, and you wear your your success as a 21 year old a little bit like a millstone for the for the rest of your life. And and I I think these are just facts of Brett Easton Ellis's career as a writer. But Troy, you're a bigger fan than I am. I want to hear a defense. You think you actually think he's a a compelling a compelling writer? Well, what I will say, Steve, what what Brett Easton Ellis gives to me is that um, I'm interested in him as sort of a poet of Los Angeles and as a poet of the perpetual apocalypse that Los Angeles is. You know, New York needs to get it needs to continue to be blown up in the movies over and over because that is what that is what we need psychically from New York in the movies. There seems to be this presumption among everyone that that the apocalypse in Los Angeles has been started like when they put the Hollywood sign up. Um, and we, we uh, I, I think that there's a cultural need for us to be told by Nathaniel West or Joan Didion or whomever else sort of how awful these people are and we need uh, sort of the the creators of our dreams to to suffer. And I think he makes them suffer very nicely. Yeah, I don't know. We've I've certainly like been slagging Ellis a little bit too, but I you know, I have to say like the book is like very readable. You mm-hmm. know, the kind of noirish elements def like definitely draw you in, maybe not with the payoff that you want. And um I think there's also an element to Ellis, maybe partly because of American psycho, like, you know, he feels a little dangerous. You know, it's not often you pick up a book and you're like, Oh well, I'm not really sure what's in this. You know, it's not gonna be nice writing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like the M dashes aren't gonna line up. You know, it's like it's gonna be you know, he's gonna you know you're gonna get the knife in the back every now and then. Yeah, it's not yeah, yeah it's it, what it, it's it, it's like you're slumming in a Mercedes, basically is what it is. <laughs> that, that that's that's just the final word. I mean there's the <laughs> There's nothing left to say. Yeah, with Elvis. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, guilty pleasure is a tricky term, but is am I working towards an answer to my earlier question before about does this late rate as literature? Is that it's you know it, it kind of appeals to a couple of different prurient interests, but there's you still feel that there's an intelligence and uh, there's a human sensitivity back there behind the narrator's sort of numbness um, that is just enough to it's just enough to keep my interest. I don't know. I, I you know I read Imperial Bedrooms in one sitting 
and was largely dissatisfied, but I certainly do not regret having read it, and it will not deter me from reading his next book. Yeah. Does that make me a sucker? Does, it, does, that, does it speak to my own human weaknesses? All right, I'll, I'll make my final run at the reputation uh, such, as, su- such as it is of Bret Easton Ellis, and then I'll hold my peace. Hemingway one, once wrote, If a writer of prose knows enough of what he is writing about, he may omit things that he knows, and the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one-eighth of it being above water. A writer who omits things because he does not know them only makes hollow places in his writing. I think the the defense that Bret Easton Ellis has always implicitly and I think explicitly offered for his work is that, well, my, my work is about hollow places, right? And therefore, this emptiness that you feel is exactly that the tip of the iceberg is the whole thing, even though it suggests greater depths. And that's the trick that he's playing, right? And there is something Hemingway, Hemingway asks about his his discipline of omission and, and, and uh, affectlessness of tone. And he's trying to make a statement about a lost generation. I think A Sun Also Rises is much more in the background of um, Less Than Zero than Catcher in the Rye. And, uh, and I don't buy it. That's where he loses me. And I think that that's where you have to either go with him or not go with him. You, you know, you're willing to say, well, what he knows are those hollow places and that emptiness in a weird way. And therefore, you can't finger him for it. But, but I think you can. I think you can absolutely say it's uh, portentous. And the second that you crack a smile or let in a real emotion, which he does in this book, the whole l- subliterary fog blows out over the Pacific. And, and I think that's what's happened with this book. So there, there's the negative case as strongly as I can state it. All right, so it seems like we've made some progress towards helping you out with your piece here. <laughs> that, yeah. We'll all look forward to this Sofia Coppola adaptation. <laughs> It'll be wonderful. So then Stephen has achieved some greater clarity of thought on the subject, or glib clarity, as the case may be. Thanks for your effort and time, gentlemen. You're very welcome. Very fun. So then for the Slate Audio Book Club, I'm Troy Patterson, and we'll play you out with a little Hungry Like the Wolf. Rock on. Rock on.